Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intense wisdom. I'm Pradeep Kumar, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med-ed in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of eight-month-old with severe bronchospasm and an abnormal blood gas. Here's the case presented by Rahul. An eight-month-old infant is brought to the emergency room with decreased alertness after one to two days of worsening work of breathing, preceded by a few days of upper respiratory tract symptoms. In the emergency department, the infant was immediately intubated for hypercapnic hypoxemic respiratory failure and transferred to the pediatric ICU. The patient's initial respiratory viral panel was positive for RSV. The initial blood gas prior to intubation was a pH of 7.1, a PCO2 of 120, a base excess of minus 4. Chest x-ray showed massive hyperinflation with no focal consolidation. Prior to intubation, the baby was in critical need of further support. The baby was tachycardic, heart rate 180 beats per minute, blood pressure was 75 over 45, and the baby was saturating only 92% on 100% FiO2 on non-invasive. Subsequently, the patient was intubated, and now we are in the pediatric ICU, where on our physical exam, the baby is sedated, intubated, almost a silent chest, really, with minimal air entry. There is an extremely prolonged expiratory phase. You don't hear any wheezing on your auscultory exam. On other examination, there's no hepatomegaly or splenomegaly. The anterior fontanelle is soft. The pupils are equal and reactive. The extremities are slightly cool to touch. You don't notice any rashing or bruising or any other evidence of trauma. For our purposes right now, our initial complete blood count is normal and our complete metabolic panel is just notable for a slightly low bicarbonate. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, this patient has an upper respiratory tract infection with worsening work of breathing, is unresponsive, secondary to respiratory failure and exhaustion, has hypercarbic respiratory failure with massive hyperinflation, all of which bring up a concern for severe acute bronchiolitis. Thank you, Pradeep. This episode will be organized into three parts. We're going to be talking about the basic epidemiology and etiology of bronchiolitis, the pathophysiology behind the lung findings that we see in bronchiolitis, and the evidence-based management of acute bronchiolitis in the pediatric ICU. So Rahul, can you shed some light on the etiology and pathogenesis of acute bronchiolitis? Absolutely, Pradeep. So bronchiolitis is something we commonly see in the pediatric outpatient hospital and the ICU setting. It's an acute viral infection of the lower respiratory tract that affects infants and young children worldwide. There are approximately 30 million cases of RSV bronchiolitis that are seen worldwide in children under the age of five, 
with about 3 million hospitalizations and approximately 200,000 deaths worldwide each year. Deaths are typically seen in low-income countries, whereas acute bronchiolitis is the leading cause of hospitalization in high-income countries. Most commonly, the identified organism is respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. This is an RNA virus of the Paramyxoviridae family. Along with RSV, we can also see rhinovirus in some cases. However, RSV accounts for over half and up to 80% of acute bronchiolitis in infants. What are some other viruses that can be involved? Well, we talked about the rhinovirus. You can also see human metanumovirus, adenovirus, parainfluenza virus, human coronaviruses as well. These can all be picked up on your respiratory viral panel. Typically, RSV has a seasonal variability, mostly seen in winter. Less variability is seen in tropical zones as large aerosol droplets are formed due to higher humidity and stable temperatures. Due to the COVID lockdowns, there were less presentations of acute bronchiolitis But recent relaxation of public health measures has resulted in the return of RSV in a shifted, atypical bronchiolitis season. RSV affects 70% of children with only a relative small percentage, 22%, showing symptoms. About 2 to 5% of children will require admission to the hospital. And of this subset, 20% will require admission to the pediatric ICU. Acute bronchiolitis presentation in in infants relates to the distal bronchiolar inflammation and obstruction, resulting in reduced airflow in the small airways and alteration in the exhalation capacity. All of these lead to lung hyperexpansion, lung function alterations, increased mucus production, atelectasis, and at times wheezing. Remember the immunopathology with RSV is characterized by the expression of pro-inflammatory cytokines with subsequent perivascular or peribronchial infiltration by mononuclear cells, mainly neutrophils and lymphocytes, triggering an unbalanced response between the T helper 1 and T helper 2 phenotype. The extrapulmonary manifestations of RSV are relatively rare, but have been cited in the literature as encephalitis, cardiomyopathy, and hepatitis in more severe disease. The exact cause of apnea, which we see in bronchiolitis, remains unknown. A study published in 2014 in the Journal of Pediatric Infectious Disease reported that viral material was not detected in the CSF of patients with apnea, supporting the notion that RSV-induced neurological manifestation is not directly due to the invasion into the central nervous system. So what are some risk factors for acute bronchiolitis? Risk factors for acute bronchiolitis are gestational age less than 37 weeks, a chronological age at presentation younger than 10 weeks, exposure to cigarette smoke, indicating that it's very important to get a good social history, breastfeeding for less than two months, fair to thrive, which means you should take a look at a child's growth chart in the ambulatory setting, chronic lung disease, chronic heart conditions, chronic neurological conditions. This has been seen in many indigenous infants and disadvantaged socioeconomic status classes as well. Additionally, there are host genetic 
polymorphisms in immune responses that have been associated with increased susceptibility to getting RSV. These are genetic variations in your toll-like receptors, which is part of the innate immune response. Variation in TLR1 and TLR10 have shown increased risk of later childhood asthma after RSV infection in infancy. What are risk factors for apnea, which is a relative absolute indication for intubation in acute bronchiolitis? Risk factors for apnea include young, corrected age, low birth weight, reported apnea, as well as low or high respiratory rate, and a low room air oxygen saturation. There are multiple viruses that are associated with apnea with similar apnea risk across the major viral pathogens. Pradeep, how do you make a diagnosis of acute bronchiolitis? Uh, Rahul, first of all, that was an excellent summary of the etiology and pathogenesis of acute bronchiolitis. So how do we make a diagnosis of acute bronchiolitis? The diagnosis of acute bronchiolitis is purely clinical. It is based on typical history and physical exam findings. A prodrome of symptoms of an acute viral upper respiratory tract infection with rhinorrhea with or without fever for up to two days is typically followed by progression to lower respiratory tract with one or more symptoms, including persistent cough, tachypnea, increased work or breathing shown by scalene and intercostal retractions, grunting or nasal flaring, and a V's or rails at chest auscultation. Now, typically what they say is in North America, expiratory wheezing is the predominant sign. And in the United Kingdom, it is crackles heard on auscultation. Now, presentation can vary by age, with young infants presenting with apnea and fine rails on auscultation, and older infants presenting with V's on auscultation. Symptoms and signs of respiratory distress and reduced feeding typically worsen over the first few days. Previously, it was believed that peak severity of illness is typically seen three to five days of illness, although a recent paper in pediatrics by Schroeder and others published in Pediatrics 2020 using data from two multicenter prospective studies reported no association between the day of illness and clinically important outcomes in bronchiolitis hospitalizations. Now, RSV bronchiolitis can present with apnea, respiratory disease such as acute bronchiolitis, myocarditis, acute encephalitis, and even hepatitis. Blood gas measurements are not indicated except where there are severe signs of respiratory distress or impending failure. Serious bacterial infections associated with bronchiolitis in general are rare, and guidelines universally recommend against uh, getting CBCs and blood cultures unless young infants are un undergoing an evaluation for possible sepsis. The hydration status should be assessed clinically, and routine measurement of serum electrolytes is unnecessary. Infants with acute bronchiolitis and fever have a lower estimated prevalence of urinary tract infection, and routine testing of urine is not required. Similarly, viral testing is not routinely recommended. Test results do not change clinical management of bronchiolitis in individual patients. Now, identification of RSV 
by PCR tests can help cohorting patients and preventing spread of infection in the ICUs. Similarly, chest radiography is not recommended as a routine investigation, particularly in infants without fever or hypoxemia. And studies have shown that chest radiography can expose infants to increased prescription of antibiotics. The role of lung focus requires further evaluation at this time. Thanks, Pradeep, for that explanation. To summarize, the differential diagnosis of acute bronchiolitis includes non-infectious causes such as congenital heart disease, myocarditis, a congenital airway abnormality, or even foreign body aspiration. Anytime you see a consolidation on exam persistent local rails on auscultation, new fever, or respiratory deterioration outside classic natural history of bronchiolitis, you should be thinking about a concurrent pneumonia. Apnea or paroxysms of cough should promote a consideration of pertussis, especially if vaccination status is incomplete. Rahul, if a history, physical, and diagnostic investigation leads to acute bronchiolitis as, in a, as a diagnosis, what would be your general uh, management framework for this patient? Absolutely, Pradeep. So this is going to be more of an art than a science, but we'll go through some general guidelines. And again, it's going to be very institution dependent. Let us first look at which infants require admission to the pediatric ICU. Those infants who have hypoxemic inability to maintain saturations despite increasing FiO2. Patients with apnea should come to the pediatric ICU. Anyone who has worsening respiratory status in terms of increasing respiratory distress or even imminent respiratory failure noted by respiratory exhaustion. Supplemental O2 is one of the mainstays of management in bronchiolitis. For low acuity patients with RSV bronchiolitis who are on low flow nasal cannula at, let's say, a flow rate of two to three liters per minute via nasal prongs, or even a simple oxygen face mask, can probably be admitted to the floor. However, as they escalate on high flow nasal cannula therapy, particularly if they are going to be above one and a half liter per kilo or clinically are not responding to high-flow nasal cannula therapy with their physiologic parameters, you should have a discussion with the hospitalist team and consider admission to the PICU. Studies report no difference between high-flow and controls in intensive care admission rates, intubation rates, or hospital length of stay, and show that the intervention is safe with pneumothoraces occurring very rarely. Additionally, High flow should not be used as a primary treatment modality in bronchiolitis with hypoxemia. Rather, the use of high flow should be reserved for escalation of therapy if standard low flow oxygenation therapies fail. Nasal continuous positive pressure can be considered in any infant with impending respiratory failure or disease. Absolutely, Pradeep. And if you are going to be escalating from high flow nasal cannula to non-invasive, such as CPAP or BiPAP, I think it's very important for you to work closely with your respiratory therapist to see if there is going to be a optimal interface for that child and availability of a non-invasive ventilator. 
Studies provide high-quality evidence that a lower oximetry threshold of 90%, especially in infants with structurally or anatomically normal hearts, should be a goal. And if you're below 90%, oxygen supplementation should be started, and it's safe to use in the short term and can even reduce hospital length of stay. Now, what about suctioning and saline drops? Although these are attractive for an infant who is an obligate nose breather, Some non-randomized studies have reported that deep suctioning may be associated with adverse events and potentially prolong length of stay. So after one initial deep suction, you may just want to consider superficial suctioning to avoid persistent nasal trauma. So regarding chest physiotherapy, which is frequently ordered in the PICU, A Cochrane review of 12 randomized clinical trials in children with variable severities of acute bronchiolitis concluded that none of the several different techniques analyzed showed a reduction in severity of the disease. So we do not recommend chest physiotherapy at this time in acute bronchiolitis. Absolutely. Now, what about hydration support? Nasal congestion of hypoxemia from a lower respiratory tract infection can lead to decreased oral intake in infants with acute bronchiolitis. A randomized study published in 2014 in Lancet Respiratory Medicine looked at nasogastric hydration versus intravenous hydration, and it showed no significant difference in length of hospital stay, adverse events, admission to the ICU, or need for ventilation. Nasogastric hydration was easier to implement and had fewer treatment failures. Additionally, observational studies of nasogastric hydration in infants with bronchiolitis on high flow therapy suggested that feeding related adverse events are rare and enteral hydration is safe while on high flow therapy. Patients who receive IV hydration are at risk for SIADH. So I think it's very important for you to continuously assess your child's high-flow nasal cannula respiratory support and enteral hydration. Typically, up to one and a half liter per kilo or even around two liter per kilo. If the child is looking well, you can consider enteral hydration, either orally or via NG hydration. Pradeep, can you shed some light on other therapeutic management strategies we frequently employ in the acute care setting? Absolutely. So Rahul, number one on that list is actually 3% hypertonic saline. So nebulized hypertonic saline, 3% or more, is a potentially attractive therapy in acute bronchiolitis due to its theoretical ability to hydrate the airway surface, reduce airway edema, and even improve mucus clearance. Now, a 2017 Cochrane systematic review of nebulized hypertonic saline for infants with acute bronchiolitis reported that hospitalized infants had a significantly shorter mean length of stay compared with those receiving nebulized normal saline. However, a large control trial published in 2020 subsequently failed to find a benefit of hypertonic saline. The 2014 American guidelines recommend use of hypertonic saline in hospitalized infants, but not in the emergency department. The British and Australian guidelines recommend against the use of hypertonic saline. So what about bronchodilators? We see this commonly employed as well. The 2014 Cochrane Review, which included about 710 participants and 10 studies, 
looked at bronchodilators, predominantly albuterol and salbutamol for infants with bronchiolitis, and they found no significant reduction in admission to hospitalization from the emergency department. The use of nebulized epinephrine or magnesium sulfate is also not recommended. What about steroids? Steroids typically are not going to be recommended. One meta-analysis that was cited in the Cochrane Review Database reported no reduction in hospitalization with steroids. Antibiotics are not recommended. But despite that, the use of antibiotics in this cohort is very high. Fever, chest radiographs, and infant looking unwell are some of the reasons antibiotics are prescribed in acute bronchiolitis. So Rahul, to bring us home, can you tell us something about mechanical ventilation and ECMO in acute bronchiolitis? Absolutely, Pradeep. So just to take one step back, the therapies which we talked about, steroids, bronchodilators, hypertonic saline, they have been relatively well validated in the ambulatory as well as in the hospital setting. However, in the pediatric ICU setting, I think there's still ongoing and evolving literature as to what are the recommendations. Now, coming to the pediatric ICU, we see children with very severe critical bronchiolitis typically placed on mechanical ventilation or even escalating to ECMO. Tracheal intubation is indicated in patients with severe bronchiolitis characterized by refractory hypoxemia, hypercapnia, and increased work of breathing. Pressure control ventilation has been preferred with use of low respiratory rates, short inspiratory times, and prolonged expiratory volume with the allowance of permissive hypercapnia to prevent barotrauma. This is similar to a pediatric ARDS guideline. Now, use of paralysis may be required to facilitate mechanical ventilation in this cohort. You could also use pressure-regulated volume control as a setting with looking at your peak inspiratory pressures and plateau pressures. Although a 2015 Cochrane meta-analysis reported that the use of Heliox could significantly reduce a clinical score assessing respiratory distress in infants with RSV, the use of Heliox did not decrease the rate of intubation, ED discharge, or duration of treatment, which actually makes sense because when we think about bronchiolitis, it is a lower respiratory airway disease. The combination of CPAP with Heliox decreased duration of therapy in a subgroup, which was immediately placed on CPAP. Another consideration in terms of invasive mechanical support is the oscillator. This can be used as a rescue when a child is going to have escalating mean airway pressures, refractory hypercarbia, and you can consider it as it provides low tidal volumes and can recruit alveoli. So Rahul, the use of nitric oxide. So one double randomized controlled trial published in 2020 compared use of nitric oxide to standard therapy in hospitalized infants with acute bronchiolitis. Now, the authors of this study reported that patients who received nitric oxide had reduced length of stay and decreased time required for SpO2 to reach 92%, as well as increased clinical progress following nitric oxide inhalation without an increase in adverse events compared to the standard treatment arm. Absolutely, Pradeep. And I think that when it comes to the use of nitric oxide, it's important to consider whether or not the child has, number one, 
signs of clinical or echocardiographic evidence of pulmonary hypertension, as well as a response to nitric oxide therapy shortly after initiation. When it comes to surfactant, a Cochrane systematic review from 2015 reported that the use of surfactant at any time after the start of mechanical ventilation improved duration of mechanical ventilation, length of stay in the ICU, as well as oxygenation and CO2 elimination. However, because of few limited in size studies, available evidence is insufficient to determine efficacy of surfactant therapy in critically ill children with acute bronchiolitis. And frankly, we do not use this therapy currently in centers across the United States. Now, ECMO may be required, such as in the infant that was presented in our case, who are difficult to oxygenate or ventilate with conventional mechanical ventilation or the oscillator. Given the patient's age and concern for neurotoxicity in a developing brain, we decided against the use of isoflurane for the acute severe bronchospasm with hypercapnia, but instead we cannulated the infant using VV ECMO. Patient had an uneventful ECMO course and was subsequently decannulated after five days of ECMO use. Excellent, Pradeep. This infant, which we presented in our case, is an example of how bronchiolitis can be a very critical, life threatening disease. I also want to go into a study which looked at the role of furosemide in bronchiolitis. Now, the use of furosemide and other diuretics in bronchiolitis remains controversial. One randomized control trial published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2018 reported that a single dose of furosemide showed no difference in respiratory rates at both two and four hours after intervention between the furosemide and placebo groups, as well as no difference in oxygen saturation, intensive care unit admission, or hospital length of stay. Additionally, a study published in the Journal of Pediatric Intensive Care in 2020 reported no change in oxygen saturation index after a single dose of furosemide, but a secondary analysis suggested that infants with worse baseline oxygen saturation index might benefit more from furosemide. I think further studies are needed to look at the role of furosemide in critical bronchiolitis. And one of the key elements which I want to incorporate here is that there have been many point prevalence or cross-sectional studies suggesting that over 80% of intensivists use furosemide in the management of a intubated bronchiolytic. Pradeep, we want to make this episode very comprehensive, and that's where we want to really highlight the role of immunoprophylaxis, as well as just prevention as these children are going to be hospitalized. Do you mind talking a little bit about the various MABs that have been undergoing trials? Absolutely, Rahul. So, pelivuzumab, it's an IgG1 antibody, which is used to prevent RSV infection in high-risk infants, such as those with a gestational age of less than 29 weeks or 32 weeks if they have BPD or congenital heart disease. It requires five doses given IM per season. Now, a new immunoprophylactic agent is a nercivimab. It is a monoclonal antibody, which is administered only once at the start of the peak season. And it was studied in infants between the age of 29 to 25 weeks of age. 
Now, prevention of nosocomial infection, hand washing, use of gowns, gloves, and masks during direct patient contact is very important. Isolation rooms for patients with RSV is also recommended in the PQ. Excellent, Pradeep. I'm so glad we were able to comprehensively cover RSV bronchiolitis. And I would encourage you to integrate this episode with other episodes, particularly the physiology of high flow nasal cannula, which is our episode number 78, as well as the ventilation of the ex premature infant baby, which is episode 55. So just to summarize our episode today, RSV followed by rhinovirus are the most common causes of acute bronchiolitis, an illness seen in infants younger than two years of age. More than half of patients with acute bronchiolitis can have recurrent wheezing or even asthma, which typically resolves with time. Mortality in acute bronchiolitis, especially in developed countries, is less than 1%. However, mortality can be as high as 30% in infants who may be premature, immunocompromised, and those with congenital heart disease or bronchopulmonary dysplasia. I also want to highlight that many therapies are not well studied in the pediatric ICU population, and we should always have a lens of high-value care when it comes to managing bronchiolitis in the PICU. Excellent, Rahul. This concludes our episode on acute bronchiolitis. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my wonderful co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Please stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.